The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening to everyone at home. I'm Tiffany Cross, as you just heard Ari say. I'm in for Joy Reid tonight. We begin the readout in Ukraine, where the situation on the ground is increasingly dire as Russian forces continue their invasion from the north east and south. This comes as civilian deaths continue to mount from Russian shelling, multi-launch rocket systems, and airstrikes. Now, Ukrainians in the southern city of Mariupol have been under assault for days as Russia continues to bomb the city, knocking out power, water, and heating supplies. Now, this presents residents from fleeing. One regional official warned that the city is on the brink of humanitarian disaster. Now, with the southern city of Kherson under Russian control, Putin has now set his sights on a city that could be used to stage a ground assault on the major port city of Odessa. That's according to a senior U.S. defense official. According to Defense Department officials, 92 percent of Russia's pre-stage military is now inside Ukraine. Now, that's up 2 percent from yesterday. The massive Russian armored column threatening Kyiv for days remains stalled outside the capital. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby confirmed that reports that the 40-mile-long convoy has been halted. This is halted by Ukrainian forces. Take a listen. We also have indications that the Ukrainians have struck the convoy elsewhere and on their own uh, uh, on uh, on vehicles. We do believe that that the actions by the Ukrainians have in fact stalled that convoy and certainly slowed it down, uh, stopped it in some places. Uh, but we also think that, uh, you know, that it, it's also a, of a piece of Russian challenges that they've had just in terms of their own physical ground movement, sustainment, logistics. They're running out of fuel. They're, we still believe that in, in some cases they're running out of food for their soldiers. In a call with the U.N. Secretary General, the Russian defense minister said the talks with Ukraine have not moved forward. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris is now scheduled to travel to Poland and Romania next week. Meanwhile, Russian troops have seized, seized the largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine. This is the largest in Europe. This is after a middle-of-the-night attack set part of the plant on fire and immediately raised global fears of a nuclear catastrophe. Today, the U.N. Security Council held an emergency meeting to discuss the attack and condemn the escalation. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield warned that the world narrowly, narrowly averted a major disaster. Take a listen. By the grace of God, the world narrowly averted a nuclear catastrophe last night. We all waited to exhale as we watched the horrific situation unfold in real time. During the meeting, Ukraine's ambassador urged the Security Council to call for a ban on all flights over Ukrainian airspace. But Secretary of State Antony Blinken pushed back, noting that a no-fly zone could lead to a full-fledged war in Europe. In a late-night address, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, visibly angry, slammed NATO for refusing a no-fly zone, saying that all the people who die from this day forward will also die because of you. Now, you have to see him to understand the anger. Take a look. Усі люди, які загинуть від цього дня, загинуть також і через вас, через вашу слабкість, через вашу роз'єднаність. 
Meanwhile, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg confirmed reports that Russia has deployed cluster bombs. In a statement, G7 foreign ministers responded, saying that those responsible for the indiscriminate assaults on innocent civilians must be held accountable for war crimes. Let's get into it. Joining me now, NBC News correspondent Cal Perry. He's live in Lviv, Ukraine. And Ben Solomon, correspondent for Vice News in Odessa. Um, I want to start with you, Cal. Uh, you're in Kiev, and I just want to paint the picture for our viewers of what we've seen. The scenes that have been coming out of Ukraine have been quite scary. There are scenes that have blanketed our screens with civilian casualties. Uh, three schools were shelled, as I'm sure you well know. We saw one of them with a gaping hole inside of the building, a nuclear power plant, as we just said, under control. Um, paint the scene for what it's like in Lviv right now for our viewers. Well, look, where I am in the western part of the country, uh, this is a city that's dealing with a refugee crisis, a city uh, that is reflective of the violence through crowds of people lost, confused, shocked by what they're seeing in places like Mariupol, in places like Kiev, in places um, in the eastern part of the country. And in the eastern part of the country, as you've laid out, we're now seeing the Russians surround civilian areas, choke them off um, and start shelling them, either indiscriminately or targeting civilians that, according to the U.S. State Department. And this is a Russian tactic that we've seen. It's something that people in this country feared was coming, and it now seems to have arrived. We saw this in Chechnya in 2000. We saw it in Syria a couple years ago. And when you when you listen to that Pentagon briefing, um, and we hear the discussions about those Russian columns being bogged down and the supply chains then being bogged down and hit, um, these columns are, are slowing down, but they're not stopping. In Mariupol, where I know we have somebody who's going to talk about this, the city, the city seems to be choked off, um, and people can't leave. And this is a place that doesn't have power, doesn't have water, where there's no heat. And this is what we're seeing play out across the country. It's leaving people here wondering, frankly, if Kiev is going to be remembered like Aleppo. And, and you have to remember, in this part of the country where I am, you have men dropping their families off at the border and then returning to the fight, some of them with no military experience, some of them uh, civilians who are not part of this military. And that's who's fighting this war. You, you chronicled what NATO is dealing with, not wanting to start a wider conflict. Well, the reality of that is, and they're, they're thinking about saving lives across Europe and avoiding a wider conflict. The, the reality is, without a no-fly zone, you have civilians fighting against the Russian army, um, and, and neither side seems to be willing to give. And, and civilians, as is so often the case, are going to pay the heaviest price, Tiffany. So I just want to um, ask to make it clear for our viewers, Cal, how far is Lviv from this uh, convoy, this Russian convoy that is alleged to have been stalled by uh, Ukrainians? I'm 350 miles from the capital of Kyiv, and that convoy is still about 40 kilometers from Kyiv. Um, so it's on the other side of the country from where I am. And that's one of the things that's so unnerving for people who have fled the violence in the east is they come to a place where I am in Lviv. It's supposed to be safe. It was supposed to be the fallback position for uh, diplomats, for civilians. And we have air raid sirens here every day. Now, we haven't had an attack here. There hasn't been any airstrikes. But it just kind of is an indication that people in this country, people who didn't think there would be a war even a week and a half ago, are now terrified that the entire country is eventually going to be engulfed in violence, Tiffany. That's quite, uh, quite a scary scene, uh, Cal. I want to bring you in, Ben, uh, in Odessa. We, we've seen the protests uh, all across Russia. Uh, people have been arrested, risking their lives uh, protesting. Paint the scene for what's happening in Odessa this evening. Well, here in Odessa, the, the situation is much different than many other parts of the country, but also very similar. Um, you know, we're, people here are watching this Kyiv, they're watching the situation in Kharkiv, where bombing is becoming more regular. 
and they're kind of waiting for that to come here. Uh, Odessa is a important port city. It's uh, the city that kind of has one of the, the biggest port in the country and the third largest city in the nation. And why it's so important for Russia to take is both economically, if they control that port, they have a huge cutoff from the uh, Ukraine government. But also, if they take this city, they really control the south of the country. Uh, being able to move forces easily in and out of the water is a big move for them. I mean, you know, one could argue that one of the reasons that they pushed to take Crimea in 2014 is similar in just kind of being able to control that south. Now, as you know, Kharkiv is being bombed, as Kiev is being so like uh, attacked and uh, so regularly, you know, a place like Odessa is really preparing. So when you walk through the streets here, when you talk with people, it's still calm. Um, people are still going out. You know, just today I met somebody who had just come from the dentist. The dentist was still open. Uh, but there's kind of an undercurrent of fear. You know, they're setting up hedgehogs, which are anti-tank defenses all around the city. Uh, these uh, people are uh, volunteers are all going to the beaches where kids used to play, packing these sandbags to distribute all around the city uh, at checkpoints and kind of building up the deployments to defense. So it's tense. You can kind of feel that soon these problems will start. But for now, while we're waiting for them to start, there's still a sense of, you know, life has to go on and the preparations have to continue. Uh, as you were talking, our viewers were able to see the scenes of uh, people there preparing um, for an impending battle. Thank you so much, Cal Perry and Ben Solomon. Please stay safe and we'll check back in with you this hour if there's any breaking news coming from either of you. Thank you so much. I want to bring in now Naveed Jamali. He's a Newsweek editor and former FBI double agent and author of How to Catch a Russian Spy. Uh, Naveed, very happy to have you here this morning. These are very scary scenes that we see uh, coming out of Ukraine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to look at this from President Zelensky's point, uh, from, from his perspective. And, you know, he's visibly angry with NATO, as you just saw. And you understand that because it was just two weeks ago when he was standing on the world stage saying, hey, I've got 200,000 troops at my border and the world needs to help. Um, I, what should we be doing for Ukraine right now? Because I have to tell you, for people who don't wake up and read eight papers before the sunrise, it kind of looks like the world is just standing by watching as we watch Putin lay waste to these cities where women and children and families live. You're absolutely right. It's a terrible situation. It's already a human tragedy. It's unfolding. And I think President Biden specifically is tasked with a, you know, a really almost impossible task. And that is to help the people of Ukraine, to support President Zelensky, but also to keep the U.S. and, frankly, NATO out of a war with Russia. You know, this is a real challenge. We've heard a lot about no-fly zones. President Zelensky asked the U.S. and NATO and both refused a no-fly zone. It's important to understand that if we send combat troops, whether on the ground or within the air, they're going to come in conflict with Russian forces. And that is undoubtedly going to lead to escalation, war between the two countries. So we just can't do that. But your question about what can be done, and you know, this is something we've reported on quite a bit. We have quite a strong feeling that there is a gray area for covert action. That is to say, U.S. military via the CIA to help the Ukrainians, not just with weapons, but to do things that allow for plausible deniability. And this is perhaps the greatest area where the U.S. and perhaps NATO and other forces can get it. Look, we've seen the Ukrainians use Turkish drones. You know, you never know who's flying those drones. There is things that can be done. It's unfortunately, or I should say fortunately, we're not going to necessarily hear about a lot of this stuff because it probably falls under that covert action.
Well, you've, you've been tweeting a lot about that. I mean, I've been following uh, your Twitter feed, and you say that there are, is likely covert uh, engagement from the U.S. going on. Something that you brought up is um, weapon recovery. Uh, as yeah. these things happen that, you know, you uh, surmise that there, yes, uh, pro- probably United States um, or, or recon operation of, of recovering some of those um, weapons. Why? Like, what would the United States, are they gathering intel from that? Are they repurposing these weapons? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, the U.S. has a long history of getting Soviet and Russian uh, weapons, including entire Russian aircraft that they flew for training against uh, the Air Force and the Navy here. So it is very possible that the CIA or, or other U.S. agencies would just send people in to, to study it. To I mean, to, it's one thing to watch it from afar and to look at it through imagery or, or watch what it's doing through a, a radar scope. It's another thing to actually be able to crawl over it and look at them, you know, look at the equipment, see how it functions. So there's an opportunity here. As Russia loses equipment, there's an opportunity for the U.S. to clearly get advanced intelligence on, on, Rus- on Russian weaponry. And there seems to be quite a bit of abandoned uh, Russian kit that's sitting on the battlefield. And you also brought up that China could be involved in this. So I guess it's a double-edged sword. But I want to ask you about NATO specifically, because, again, going back to Zelensky's anger, which is certainly understandable as we see these images play out, uh, like blanket our screens, essentially, for the past few weeks. Um, You know, I get that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. However, there are NATO members in the line of sight for Putin. I mean, you know, the fact that they have taken over a nuclear plant puts many of us at, at danger. Why can't NATO intervene here? I understand that you're saying that, you know, might be direct engagement. It might be a conflict. But is there truly nothing that can be done? Because all of this is happening because of one person, and that is Vladimir Putin. So is there nothing that NATO can do to pause or bring to a screeching halt the assault that he has laid on this independent country? So the short answer is there are, of course, things that NATO can do. What NATO cannot do, quite specifically, is get directly involved in Ukraine. However, as you mentioned, there are quite a few countries that ring Ukraine that are, in fact, NATO partners. And it is very important. In fact, uh, Sweden and Finland, for example, they were threatened directly by Russia. They are not part of NATO. You know, there is a lot that we must do. Look, what is happening is Ukraine is awful and terrible, but Vladimir Putin cannot be allowed to expand out of Ukraine. So right now, one of the most important things we can do is to continue to support Ukraine, both military lethal aid, but also to make sure that NATO partners are strengthened, that Vladimir Putin, who is clearly acting in an unhinged, irrational manner, cannot move beyond Ukraine and is contained and that the pressure remains on him to leave Ukraine. And that's what NATO can do. That's what NATO is doing, even if it isn't patrolling the skies over Ukraine, still performing an incredibly important mission to keep the world safe. And it just doesn't seem to be working because how long I, there's a volunteer army, there are people, Ukrainians standing there, but it seems like they are at best slowing down the Russian advance, yeah. not stopping it. So that's quite frightening. I do want to bring up the fact that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is headed uh, to Poland next week. What is her presence on the world stage signal to our allies and our enemies? Well, this is exactly right. Saying the vice president there is incredibly important. It's incredibly important for the United States and NATO to extend their resolve to Article 5 to all our NATO partners, and frankly, to partners that are, countries that aren't part of NATO. Look, it is really important that Vladimir Putin does not get any ideas of expanding beyond that. And look, I just want to say one thing about what's happening in Ukraine. It is absolutely clear tonight, Tiffany, that while Vladimir Putin and the Russian forces may in fact take cities, including Kiev, they may obtain uh, their tactical goals. 
they clearly at this point with Zelensky's incredible statesmanship and incredible leadership, they will not obtain their strategic goals. As long as President Zelensky remains in power in Ukraine, uh, a free and independent Ukraine exists, even if the Russians occupy several of their major cities. I, I will have to tell you, it is something seeing the spirit of the Ukrainian people Indeed uh, hold off this advance. And so uh, we will keep uh, posted uh, on, on what's happening there. Thank you so much, Naveed Jamali, for joining us this evening. And up next for you folks at home, just how close did we come to a nuclear catastrophe last night in Ukraine? And what's the potential danger going forward? Plus, the latest on sanctions and the impact they might be having on ending the crisis in Ukraine. The readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Okay, the world narrowly escaped a nuclear catastrophe last night. That's what the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. said today after Russian forces attacked and seized the largest nuclear power plant in Europe located in southern Ukraine. Now, a live stream from the plant's security camera, you can see it right there, captured a bright flash from a flare-like projectile as well as two blasts and munition fire at the complex. The International Atomic Agency confirmed that Russian forces had struck a building causing a fire that raged for almost five hours. That was according to a plant spokesperson. Russian troops even shot at the firefighters who arrived to put out the blaze. Now, as this was unfolding, President Zelensky warned that if there is an explosion, that's the end for everyone. Do not let Europe die from a nuclear catastrophe. That's what he pleaded. Now, thankfully, the fire was limited to a training facility and no radiation has been detected since the attack so far. However, the risk of a radiological disaster is raising serious alarm around the world, as it should. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine said this morning it is a war crime to attack a nuclear power plant. And Ukraine's ambassador to the U.N. today accused Russia of nuclear terrorism. Now, of course, Ukraine is intimately familiar with the risk of a nuclear meltdown, given, of course, the 1986 disaster at Chernobyl. Now, in that case, radioactive fallout spread as far as Sweden, and that was just within two days. But while the plant under attack last night is far safer, experts say they're simply just not designed to withstand a military assault. With Russian troops in control, Ukrainian workers are operating the facility at gunpoint. At gunpoint. That's according to the head of the company. With me now is Joe Sincerioni, distinguished fellow 
at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and author of Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late. And Gregory Yatsko, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and author of Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. So happy to have both you gentlemen with me. Joe, I want to kick it off with you. I know uh, that experts are saying we're safe for now and, you know, that things are fine. But I want you to walk us through what potentially could have happened by Russians striking uh, this nuclear power plant. Well, we dodged a nuclear bullet last night, and I'm with our U.N. Ambassador, uh, Thomas Greenfield, who, who said that we, we narrowly dodged a nuclear catastrophe. I also agree with the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, who said he was extremely concerned that there was a severe risk of a, a mass casualty event at that. Basically, what happened was, fortunately, the attack was limited. So even though we're shooting flares, as you're seeing here, into a nuclear facility, that there's volleys of uh, heavy caliber machine gun fire, that it didn't hit the containment facility. Now, this is a strong reinforced concrete containment facility around these six reactors, but there's not a facility in the world that's designed to withstand a tank attack, artillery attack, mortar attack. Uh, the real danger for me wasn't so much that, that the, the, the infrastructure would be damaged, is that in the course of this, you might cut off the electrical supply to this facility. Now, there's a backup supply, but that could have been damaged, too, in this kind of attack. And you might then have a Fukushima-type event where the coolant is unable to get into the reactor, the fuel rods overheat, they, they, they melt down, a meltdown, a molten uranium then sinks into the ground and you have this spread of radioactivity in the ground, in the, in the water supply, and if hydrogen gas builds up in the containment vessels, you could see an explosion like we had at Fukushima, and then it could go into the air as, as well. All of these things are possible, which is why it's against international law to attack a nuclear power plant. There's a Geneva a Convention prohibiting this. Russia was a signatory to this. It was another example of Russia breaking international law, violating global norms. I agree. This was a terrorist attack on a nuclear plant. The terrorists happen to be wearing Russian army uniforms. Wow. And before I bring in Greg, Joe, I just want to follow up with you because you're painting the picture of what could have happened, which I appreciate. When you say that it could have gotten into the air, I just want to punctuate this point for our viewers. Let's say it did get into the air. What happens when human beings make contact with that air? What's the human cost of that? If you're, if you're very close to this, like people were in Chernobyl, yeah. you die. You know, yeah. you, you, you die. If you're farther downstream, it doesn't kill you immediately. But even a small amount of these highly radioactive particles in, in the in the fuel that will then be vaporized and put into the air would get inside you and, get, and give you cancer. You wouldn't die immediately, but you would die over years. That's the danger of something like this. Yeah. So so at worst, mass human casualty immediately. Uh, at best, if there is such a thing, uh, a, a slow death, which is uh, quite frightening. Greg, I know that experts are saying that we're um, in the clear, but are we in the clear in perpetuity? You know, um, you know, because we are not seeing any um, fallout from this yet. Does that mean that we can all collectively breathe a sigh of relief or should we remain on high alert? Yeah, I mean, this situation is not going to be over really until the war is over, because these reactors are a critical piece of the infrastructure, the electricity infrastructure in Ukraine. So controlling them is extremely important, obviously, for both sides. So I suspect that Russian forces will attempt to 
to control all the reactor sites in, in the country. They, they provide almost 50% of the electricity uh, in the Ukraine. So they're really vital for, for the country. And one of the things that, you know, obviously we get a lot of focus, a lot of attention on incidents like last night where you have fires and you have these kinds of shelling activities. But long term, the operation of these reactors is extremely unclear. Will it be Ukrainian uh, uh, operators operating like normal or operating at gunpoint or operating in very precarious situations? All of those factors become very, very important, not just in the next several days, but over weeks and months as this potential uh, uh, incursion continues. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about that, Greg, because like we said in the open, the Internet, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency has said that there are people working in these facilities at gunpoint. They have not had a shift change uh, in in over a week. And I think about people who work in high stress jobs like doctors and pilots. You know, there's a limit to how long they work Um, and working, you know, in these extended times at gunpoint. Nonetheless, what danger does that pose? Yeah, I mean, these crews have to be able to operate at at optimal efficiency. And when they're operating under the conditions that they're operating on, many of them potentially have loved ones who are in harm's way because of the fighting, or they may have homes that are impacted or damaged. This is a very, very challenging situation. So that all goes to their performance. And we know that a crucial element when it comes to maintaining safe nuclear reactors is that the operators perform at an optimal level. And many reactor operators are very highly trained. They're they're very good at what they do, but they can make mistakes. And the more that they're operating under these very, very challenging conditions, the the more that they have the likelihood of of making mistakes or of operating incorrectly. Now, one of the good things from a nuclear safety perspective that's happened is that some of these reactors have gone into more of a shutdown mode, which dramatically reduces the chance that they could have a a large radiation release. But of course, I think as Joe mentioned, that means that they don't have electricity supply then throughout the country. So I think that will be where you really have this very, very difficult choice that Ukrainian forces will have to make is how much do they defend these facilities, knowing now that the Russians are willing to use artillery or other weapons to, to attack them? Or do they simply turn the plants over and then on, you know, operate them at, at gunpoint. I think that's a very, very difficult choice that that Ukraine and the, and the operators, the power companies are going to have to make. And, and yeah. clearly, I think we see that Russians are not acting responsibly here. That's a difficult choice for them and a terrifying choice for the globe, I'd argue. Joe, I want to bring you back in, uh, because in Sweden, uh, a lot of the residents are taking uh, iodine pills or stocking up on iodine pills, I should say, um, which helps against radiation sickness, of course. I'm just curious um, if Putin Putin has been bragging about his uh, nuclear superiority for years now, especially in the last few months. If there is nuclear engagement, what exactly does that mean for us domestically? What does that mean for Americans here? Boy, you know, there are so many nuclear dimensions to this crisis now. You really have multiple nuclear nightmares unfolding, both the exercising of nuclear-capable weapons by Putin just last week before the invasion, his unprecedented nuclear threats that he gave, his false claims that he had to invade a, a, a Ukraine because they were developing nuclear weapons, and now this, basically weaponizing nuclear power plants, seizing them, you know, for his war purposes. And then this, also, this, this could get worse. I mean, imagine if he starts losing this war and he retreats. Does he sabotage these plants on his way out? You know, this is and then you have the issue that you raise. If Putin starts to lose this war, if he feels cornered 
There is actually a Russian strategy, a military strategy called escalate to de-escalate, where the Russians would use a nuclear weapon first to prevent their defeat, to signal to the West that they're serious, this is an existential risk for them, and that they want the West to back off. Unfortunately, nuclear war games have repeatedly shown that once you start using nuclear weapons, there is no clear break. Once you use one, the adversary will use one. And that is the danger. And that is basically what's stopping us from intervening, as you were talking about with your first guest, the risk that these nuclear nightmares could just erupt into a full-fledged nuclear war. We are closer to something like this than we've been since the 1980s. It, it is, uh, Joe, what you just said there was absolutely terrifying. There's a great line in the movie Crimson Tide with uh, Denzel Washington uh, where he says the purpose of nuclear war ultimately serves itself. So there is no winner here. Um, that that no strategy winner. you told us about escalate to de-escalate is terrifying. Thank you so much, uh, Joe Sincerioni and Greg Riazko, uh, for your very helpful insight. And up next, a crackdown on social media and other information outlets in Russia as Putin calls for the normalization Normalization in quotes on international relations. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. All right, so get this. Today, Vladimir Putin actually called for normalized international relations, a.k.a. no sanctions, while claiming that he has, quote, no bad intentions towards our neighbors and that Russia's actions were, quote, exclusively in response to unfriendly actions. Putin, however, has shown zero zippy signs of stopping his invasion of Ukraine. And today he signed a law actually making it illegal to knowingly spread what he's calling false information about the Russian military with a maximum punishment of 10 to 15 years. And this led to multiple media outlets making the decision to suspend their operations in the country. This is part of a larger crackdown on media the Russian people are allowed to consume, with the country shutting down what little independent media it has, as well as blocking foreign outlets like the BBC and Voice of America. Now, the Russian government also blocked Facebook and Twitter today. Now, this comes as some Russians are rushing to flee the country, conserved that Putin could actually declare martial law or stop men of fighting age from leaving Russia. As USA Today points out, martial law would give the Kremlin a near absolute power to escalate with impunity its already punishing crackdown. 
The Kremlin, of course, denies that it's considering enacting martial law. With me now is Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. She's a historian and PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania Department of History. Kimberly, lovely to see you again. Thanks for being with us this evening. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in Russia right now, because in over 100 cities, the people of Russia are standing up and they are denouncing Putin's actions in Ukraine, even knowing it will cost them, could potentially cost them 10 to 15 years when protests are essentially damn near illegal in Russia. What does it say that they're doing it anyway? And does Putin care? He doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would really even give a consideration to how his people feel about any of this. I think it is a powerful example that so many Russians are risking prison imprisonment, police brutality to speak out against this war, including elderly women. We've seen 80 and 90 year old women who survived the siege of Leningrad who are being mistreated by the police for saying no to this war. So I do think it's powerful. I think we need larger and more protests. But I think you're right as well. Putin clearly does not care about regular Russian people, because if he cared, he would have stopped this war. The sanctions are already starting to really affect regular Russians. It's harder to get groceries. Prices are exploding. And it's also incredibly hard for Russians who are trying to work outside of Russia to help their families. It's impossible for them to send money back home. So I think what we're seeing here with this crackdown on free speech, no more free media, I think this is less about Putin caring what regular Russians think, but more about Putin caring about the types of information that are allowed into Russia. Even some of his disinformation and his propaganda uh, operation that he's running is not so much directed towards his people or even directed towards the Ukrainian people as much as it is the international community, uh, that he wants to send a message to the international community. So they've been putting out these false reports that Zelensky has fled. He has not. As we see, Zelensky is still very much in Ukraine. The Ukrainian people are very much fighting back. Um, but they're being somewhat outgunned by social media, right? Like people have been able to say in real time, no, this is not true what you're hearing from propaganda out of Russia. This is actually what's happening on ground, which, of course, led to him blocking some of these social media outlets. I'm really curious, though, that he's not um, yet blocked WhatsApp or Instagram. Why do you think that is? I think Putin doesn't necessarily know about the power of these types of social media. I mean, just that we're seeing this reaction now kind of belies the changes that have happened in Russia and the access to outside information in Russia that's happened since the initial Russian incursion into Ukraine in 2014 and the Russian wars in Georgia in 2008. So I'm interested in this case because Telegram um, is a, also a big way for Russians to get information from outside. And I'm not sure Russia knows how to make sure that this information can't get in. But as soon as they crack down, I promise you, Russians are working on ways to get around it and to make sure information is being able to come in from outside of Russia. I want to talk about also uh, the folks who are trying to flee, like they're trying to get out of Russia. Um, you know, I understand why he might keep uh, men of fighting age there. Um, what about the path to freedom for women and children who want to flee, who don't stand with him, even his own military? I mean, his military has a low morale problem. We see Russian soldiers in Ukraine begging for food and they're, you know, ill-equipped to, quite frankly, hold up this kind of advancement. Um, why keep the people there? Is it just to save face? 
I think one thing is to save face a max exodus out of Russia. I mean, of course, looks bad for Putin. But two, it's also the lack of Russian airspace. Almost all of the EU has closed off its airspace to Russian airplanes. S7, the second biggest airline in Russia, will no longer be doing international flights as of tomorrow. I also think another key problem, and I'm going to say this here, is we will be seeing another refugee crisis, but this time out of Russia. And we have to think about all those Russians who don't have access to Western funds who will not be able to afford flights to places like Istanbul or Belgrade. But moreover, there are thousands of African students, Indian students, Middle Eastern students who you know live and work in Russia, Afro-Russian. So there is still another you know refugee crisis coming, and we need to be prepared as Western countries to recognize that this is going to happen and figure out a way to help these people. Because they are going to be coming and they're going to be trying to get out of Russia any way they can. Yeah, I think you're right. And we've seen some of the disparate treatment uh, from brown refugees, uh, certainly out of Ukraine. And I imagine, uh, sadly, that we may see that with Russia as well. So we'll certainly keep our eye uh, on that aspect of the story. Um, I, I want to ask, because you're an, an expert in this area, the, there's a bipartisan effort uh, in, in, in Congress to encourage the Biden administration to um, end all Russian oil imports. Will, will Putin care about that? I, you know, it's just complicated because it's, he's operating as someone who does not intend to suffer consequences. And we're going to talk more about that on the next block. But I'm just curious your thoughts. What is going to stop him at this point? If, if sanctions won't do it, will oil? I think oil is going to be key here. If you cut off Russian oil and, and exports and imports, that means Putin not making money. And Putin is spending, I think I've seen numbers of, you know, $700 million a day of Western money is being spent on Russian oil. Cut off his wallet. He can't afford bombs. He can't afford gas for the tanks if Russia is not producing oil for the West, including in Europe. So I think we need to start having some conversations about how to replace Russian oil and gas. But moreover, Europe is going to have to stop being dependent on Russian oil and gas. It's the only way to make sure Vladimir Putin doesn't get the money for his war. I just I wonder what the domino effect is, because if we cut off Russian oil, what does that do for our relationship with the Saudis? And, you know, what is what wide, dark shadow does that cast across the globe when we do something like that? So sadly, this is a conversation that requires more time, which we are out of. So thank you so much, uh, Kimberly St. Julian Vernon, for being with us this evening. And we're going to continue our discussion of the Ukraine invasion next with an arms control negotiator who's now running for U.S. Senate. You want to hear what he has to say? Stay with us. I think the question everyone is asking is, what do we do about Vladimir Putin? And it's not a new question. Far from it, actually. In the wake of his invasion of Ukraine, it is the question every world leader is confronting with new intensity, from slapping historic sanctions on the Kremlin to hammering the ruble, which leads us to our second question. What happens when you back Putin into a corner? Because nothing good, according to senior White House officials who are debating the potential consequences, which may include cyber attacks to our financial system, along with nuclear threats. Now, on Capitol Hill, pressure is mounting from both parties for President Biden to up the ante and ban U.S. imports of Russian oil, even as Secretary of State Blinken pushed back today against calls to sanction Russian energy directly. Joining me now is Lucas Kuntz. He's a Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in Missouri. He's also a former Marine and has 
worked as an arms control negotiator with Russia and NATO. So he's uniquely to answer some questions I've got tonight. Thank you uh, for being with us. And the first question I think I have to ask you is, um, we see Putin committing a war crime. I mean, UN has come out and said to attack a nuclear plant is a war crime. Will we ever see any accountability? Will he ever be held responsible for what he's done today? Because right now it seems like the world is looking, just taking a step back and watching all of this play out, this very dangerous situation play out. Yeah, I think what we saw is, you know, when when Putin originally invaded, he thought that if he had this massive show of force that the country would just fold. You know, when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan as a Marine, one of the things I often worked on was the rules of engagement, which is how much collateral damage are you willing to accept to accomplish the mission? How many dead civilians? How much infrastructure? He thought he could take the place with the show of force and hardly hurt the infrastructure. And honestly, like a ton of brave Ukrainians proved him wrong. And so then he was faced with the decision of, of how he's going to proceed, obviously. And what it looks like to me is he's decided to fully relax the rules of engagement. He's willing to accept any amount of civilian death or destruction of infrastructure in order to accomplish his mission. Uh, And it's sad. And really to prevent this from ever happening again, we honestly just need to completely defang the guy. Yeah. And when you say civilian death, I I have to say that at least 17 children uh, are among the civilians who have died so far, which is, of course, very devastating. And people keep saying, look, we haven't even seen the worst of it yet. This could get a lot worse. And I'm just curious, from your expertise, what does worse look like? I mean, this is what war looks like, right? What works looks like is what he did in Chechnya, right? It's complete annihilation and destruction of the towns, the people who live there and everything else. And so, uh, again, like there are ways that we can prevent that or make sure it doesn't happen again in the future. And I think we need to start engaging with those. I want to uh, play a, a soundbite from Senator Lindsey Graham, um, who offers this solution to how to deal with Putin. And then we'll talk about it on the other side. Take a listen. Somebody in Russia has to step up to the plate. Is there Brutus in Russia? Is there a more successful Colonel Stauffenberg in the (coughs) Russian military? The only way this ends, my friend, is for somebody in Russia to take this guy out. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Obviously, Moscow uh, certainly had a response to that. But I'm curious your thoughts, because, I mean, this does seem like all of this is being caused by this one person. But two questions here. One, he seems to be surrounded by sycophants. So there's nobody uh, to, you know, kind of rein him in a bit. And two, even if for some reason someone in Russia was able to secede him, uh, we're not guaranteed that another Putin would not necessarily uh, secede him, so to speak. Look, if Lindsey Graham wants this to happen, he should just be a man and go do it himself, right? Like what the rest of us need to do is we need to realize that this is the third time that Putin's invaded one of his neighbors in the last 14 years, right? The third time. And that was funded by the Western European purchase of his gas. I did the negotiations with NATO and Russia. I saw that. I saw how that corrupted them. You know, since 2014, they've actually gotten more reliant on his gas, not less. And so what we need to make sure to do is prevent, stop this and then present, prevent invasions four, five, six that, you know, the guy's got planned too. And to do that, you know, it, it starts with two things. First, we need to completely eliminate his market for gas. We have the power to do that. We have the U.S. dollar. We have sanctions. We have the ability to completely take away his ability to sell that right now. And then the next step 
is that we need to invest in the next generation of energy technology right here in America and start exporting that to Europe and elsewhere so that he never has a market to ever sell it again. We completely defang him. We defund his war machine and we don't have to worry about him ever again. Well, on that point, because what you're saying, I mean, that would take a little bit of time. What what I think concerns me and a lot of Americans, it should concern a lot of Americans, is how he can attack the U.S., right? We saw in 2016, he did attack our democracy by, you know, striking that court of white supremacy and targeting black voters. We're in another election year with midterms coming up. Havana syndrome, uh, you know, which impacts people's brain functions, like microwave energy uh, that impacts people, has been uh, cited here on domestic soil. What is the biggest threat you think that Russia posed to domestic soil right now and how can we prepare ourselves well really like right now the guy's hands are full with ukraine like these brave ukrainians are standing up they're giving him more than he can handle and that gives us a window to act while he's distracted while he's busy with that and so what we need to do is bring down the hard sanctions so like your previous guest said he doesn't have the money to keep doing this and stopping u.s imports isn't enough like we don't buy enough of his gas to make that happen We need to Mm. use the power of the U.S. dollar to make sure it's not sold worldwide. And then, you know, he won't be able to do a lot of the stuff that he can do. And and then again, we need to prevent him from ever doing it again. And, And we have the capability to do that. We are an innovative people. We know how to build things. We know how to create. We just need to decide to actually invest in it because investing in that is much, much cheaper than another war. Like I watched us spend six point four trillion dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan. For, for less than that money, we could have a fully renewable grid here right yeah. now. We just need to choose to make the investment. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll keep our eye on it and see what, what uh, unfolds, Lucas Coons. Thank you so much. And for our viewers up next, how relief workers are trying to bring a little sunshine into the lives of the smallest victims of this war. We all could use a little hope right now, so you don't want to miss this. Stick around. Well, as you all are well aware, the horror of war is unimaginable and even more so for the half million Ukrainian children who themselves have become refugees. Last night, workers in a refugee camp in Romania made the day special for a little girl named Irina, despite all the chaos. As you see there, emergency workers at the mobile camp and Arena's mother pitched in with party hats, balloons, and a cake for the surprise seventh birthday party at the camp where she's now living with her family. Sad sight indeed. And that's tonight's readout. Joy returns on Monday, but please do be sure to join me tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern for the Cross Connection. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal joins me to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and I'm also digging deeper into the racist treatment of black and brown people as they try to flee Ukraine. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.